welcome to Flourishing Education, the podcast that provides you with conversations with experts and like-minded people who would like to see education turn into a flourishing environment for the well-being of all. So, are you ready? Let's start. Hope you enjoy this session. lucky to be speaking to Bailey Parnell um, and yeah so first of all you know thank you so much Bailey for your time I really appreciate it. I'm happy to be here and sharing the message. Yeah no it's wonderful so um, do you want to tell our listeners uh, who you are where you're based and what you do? <laughs> yeah I'm actually based in Toronto Canada and I own a company called Skills Camp which is a soft skills training company And we work with a bunch of businesses and higher ed institutions and even governments to build soft skills in their staff and students. And so that can be anything from things like resilience to self-awareness, distress management, and so on. And the other half of my life and why we're here today is that I research and also might be company number two this year. I research social media's impact on mental health and then share my five steps towards safe social. So Mm. especially helping youth but everyone else as well, be well before, during, and after social media use and really just understand what's going on there. Yeah, wonderful. And the reason I reached out to you is when I, as I was saying to you before we recorded this, when I, I was doing the research uh, for, the, for the book that came out in October, I had to grow growing up were written with my colleague, Dominique Thompson, who's a GP, a doctor in the UK. Um, I actually watched your, your TED talk and you know, looked at the... The recommendations you you make, so maybe we we can share that with with people. Um, so so do you want to tell us about how you got into your research first of all, before you tell us what your research is all about? Yeah, so I actually used to work before I went full time with my business. I worked full time at a university, Ryerson University in Toronto, Canada, and part of my role there was digital social marketing, and and even before that, I worked in digital marketing for TV. So I was seeing all these news articles saying, you know, oh my gosh, social media might cause depression. And at the same time, I was there telling youth to be on social media with me. And so it was actually probably in 2015 when it was Mental Health Week at Ryerson and someone had just come to me and said, you're the social media person. Can you talk about this during Mental Health Week? And I said, okay, yeah, sure. So that all was happening all at the same time. And that kind of... um, kind of sparked my initial curiosity and and that continued over experiences. It wasn't just overnight that I decided this, but I also went on a vacation with my sister. And at this time, which you'll, which you hear in the Ted talk, I was, um, this was a no work vacation and it had been a very long time since I had done that. And I noticed in myself that I was having what I would now call withdrawals in terms of anxious um, separation anxiety from the phone, really, um, wanting to check, having a nervous habit to actually literally go grab something that I decided would not be there. And then when I was on it, I was also feeling like, you know, what a waste of my time. And if I'm feeling like that at all, then I'm thinking, okay, I clearly need to rejig the time. And now you fast forward and I actually have a good time on social media. And so part of my 
all of this together, my curiosities just came with, well, why am I having a good time? But I'm also having withdrawals when it's not there. And if I'm going to be telling youth to be spending t- time here <laughs> with me, mm-hmm. I need to make sure that they can do it um, in a safe way. And so all of this together kind of started my professional research into social media's impact on mental health. And then it was kind of, well, if I'm going to be doing this research anyway, I may as well get degrees out of it. <laughs> so, mm, yeah, totally. <laughs> yes. So that led into the academic research. Mm, wonderful. So when you did your research, what did you actually discover? What did you find out about social media? Yeah, so this is kind of an interesting situation because I did start with my professional work before the academic, which is kind of um, usually it's the other way around for people. And so in all of it together, when I first went in, what I actually thought I would find was a more explicit correlation between time on social media and the rising levels of anxiety and depression, especially given the news headlines that you see all the time. And of course, like most things, the news headlines do not cover the full story. And so when I first went in, I was actually surprised to find that there was no consistency in the literature at all. Mm -hmm. Some people said, yeah, there's an issue. Some people said there's no statistical relevance here. And some people said the exact opposite, that time on social media improved the mental health of their participants. So what was always consistent was that when there was a mediator in the middle, like I feel envy more, or when I'm on there, I feel lonelier, or I compare myself more. If that was the case, then it was always a bad situation. And so what, so much so actually that if that mediating variable was removed in the quantitative research, it might actually be a good relationship between time on social media and positive mental health or a decline in negative mental health. So, sorry, mental, I guess not health, but, um, So that told me that it was less about the uh, networks themselves and that time on social media might not be a good indicator of anything in this space, but rather what was the most important thing was the mediator and who you are offline. And this became very true in my research as well. What emerged with my participants, which was all interview based, was that 100% of them had negative experiences to share as a result of using social media, but also, this is the part you don't see in the news, 100% of them gave very positive experiences of using social media as well. And I'm sure that we can all name them because we are probably experiencing them too, as, as am I. And it almost sounded exactly like this. This is almost a direct quote. If I went to the gym that day and I see a fitness influencer, I think hashtag goals. But if I didn't and I feel dusty, then I'm like, I hate life. Wow. This was this was enough to be the most like the most emergent theme and and the most important thing moving forward was that it wasn't about the content. In fact, the same piece of content from the same influencer could be a motivator and inspiration one day and could be something that tears you down the next day. The same picture of the same group of friends could make you happy one day when you feel like you saw your friends and could make you lonely another day. And so that said, again, the most important thing was who you are offline. And if you're feeling lonely, don't take a hit of the drug. If you're feeling depressed or unproductive, don't take a hit of the drug. If you feel like you want connection or community or inspiration or laughter, then then we need to make sure that you're managing risk enough to get those benefits yeah. without the risk, essentially. Wow. 
So were you surprised when you you found this? Was that was that a surprise of like find that's something you expected somehow? You know, it's kind of funny because when I, I mentioned my other business that is Skills Camp, which is a soft skills training company. And it was kind of this poetic thing of life because there was also a moment when I started my degree where I felt like, oh, are these two going in separate directions? You know, even thinking about like your own personal brand, you know, our soft skills over here, social media, mental health, like, okay. So, but then the poetic thing of life, which was absolutely not planned going into the degree was that when this emerged, I was already building the solution that your own self-awareness, like I'm even getting chills, that you're getting that your own self-awareness, do you even know when you're stressed? Do you know how to set productive circumstances for yourself? Mm -hmm. Do you know how you bounce back from things or what even makes you happy? Or when you go through a feed, like, do you know what makes you laugh? Like, this is just self-awareness, resilience, time management, stress management that proved to be the most important thing in the social media experience for you. And that that was really the key, almost determining factor of, of what would either make it a positive experience for you or, or a negative experience for you. Mm -hmm. And so I suppose that I thought I would find that time on social media was enough to be a bad situation. But what I actually found was that it doesn't have to be. And even though it might be correlating right now because people aren't really understanding these risks, hence my work doing this stuff, that, that we can change it. I believe we can change it or I wouldn't even be having these conversations to make it so that we can get the benefits of social media with less risk. Mm. So understanding why that's the case, making sure you're using well, kind of like any other risky behavior like yeah. alcohol or drug, drugs or sex or something like that. Yeah. And, you know, I often, people often ask me when, you know, parents, for example, when I give talks to parents here in the UK, they say to me, is social media or, you know, technology the one thing for our children? Because it's so different from, you know, what we, I had and I grew up with. Um, and, and I often say to them, I use the analogy and I'd love to have your take on that. I always say, you know, it, it's a tool. Social media is a tool. So it's a little bit like a knife. You can, you, you, a knife you can use to, to cut bread and to cut food with, or, you know, and you can use to kill someone or hurt someone. Yeah. It's, it's the intention is how you use the tool effectively. Right. And it sort of, it seems to me that it, it, sort of fits quite nicely with what you're yeah. saying it's about learning not only how mm -hmm. to navigate the tool and use the tool but also recognize how the tool is having an impact on you as an individual yeah and so we're definitely in the same kind of category of belief about this thing and the way that I word it now and, and you're obviously welcome to take this or I wouldn't be sharing it at all but for me what I defined in my work was that social media is a risky behavior like sex or drugs or alcohol. And in psychology, we judge a risky behavior as something where simply you expose yourself to potential harm by participating. You expose yourself to potential harm, just like sex or drugs or alcohol. And for me, for alcohol, yes, we, we know the potential harm. We know the risks. There's literally biblical rules against this stuff. We've got that figured out. And every parent has experience with it. And every teacher has experience with it. So it's very clear what the risks are here. But we know for sure now that there are potential risks from participating online, especially on social media. Mm -hmm. And that's probably one of the most at-risk groups are teenagers. And teenagers with 
multi-barrier teenagers. So if you are a teenager of color, if you're a woman, if you are all of these kind of um, equity seeking groups and you're a teenager, then you're the most at risk. And so, well, for reasons we can talk about in a little bit, but basically if you think about it like a risky behavior, then the treatment becomes quite similar to other risky behaviors. I love wine. <laughs> that is my risky behavior <laughs> choice. <laughs> so for me, it's, um, but am I getting drunk on wine every single night? No. Am I binge drinking? No. We've figured out how to manage these mm. risks so mm. that I can get the benefits of red wine with my meals. <laughs> so it's kind of the same with social media. As you're saying, there's this tool, there's this behavior where if I'm feeling off or if I'm feeling lonely or even every, all the other, those other risks um, that have you know stress, harassment, seeing traumatic imagery, anxiety, depression, addiction, <laughs> like oh, we could go on forever about the potential risks. So we need to mitigate first, even understand what they might be, which is a lot of my work still because it's still relatively new. So still a lot of awareness and understanding and speaking the same language work. And then the rest of my five steps towards safe social, which is how do we basically mitigate those risks and mm. still get all those benefits. Mm, wonderful. So before we talk about the five ways to mitigate those risks, because I'd love you to talk to, to that. Um, You've mentioned that there are groups of young people who are more at risk. So can you, can you explain a bit more about that uh, for us? Yeah, so when I say at risk, basically we are all at risk, just like any other risky behavior, <laughs> just means that there's potential harm from participating. And for example, you could go on today and see an image that really makes you feel down. It could be just as simple as that. Mm -hmm. And so a risk of participating is simply that you're going to see something that impacts you and you don't know what it's going to be. Mm -hmm. That's the risk. Mm -hmm. And so impacts you negatively. Of course, the risk is also that you get that positive, but you know, that, that might be a negative risk. Um, and so we're all at risk. And when we, when I was telling you that the most important thing is who you are offline and that teenagers are more at risk. Say for example, there's, um, with teenagers particularly, one of the things causing an issue is, is social comparison. Mm -hmm. So people are comparing themselves at, I'd like to think, probably more elevated rates than ever, because yeah. though in the past you could compare to others around you in smaller communities and you could compare to maybe celebrities on the TV, that kind of felt distanced. But now you can compare to people just like you all over the world, which makes it stronger comparison and more likely to impact your identity. You can, um, it's directly tied to you. It's quantified. It doesn't turn off. Like all these, for all these reasons, I think that there's elevated rates of peer-to-peer -peer comparison. And for teenagers, you are already at a phase of life, which is completely normal in terms of social psychological development where in puberty, you start engaging in more peer-to-peer -peer comparison. You go outside the family as a means of understanding your identity. So you're already at this phase of life, which is very normal, I have to remind parents, was happening long before social media. Mm -hmm. Your brains, though they won't want to hear this, are quite are not done growing yet, <laughs> like quite literally. Yeah. In fact, growing maybe at, at the same rate as a toddler. And you have, you cannot possibly, possibly be your most self-actualized self if your brain is not even done growing. Mm -hmm. And then thirdly, you're also at just the phase of history right now where 
parents and educators largely didn't grow up with social media themselves. So you might be being harassed in your DMs and you go to your therapist, you go to a teacher, a parent, and you say, and you tell them and they say, what's a DM? Mm. And so there's this disconnection right now. And um, the, the social supports that would exist for maybe other risky behaviors aren't here. And you know, a, a teenager that goes out drinking for one party on the, on the high school <laughs> party circuit is not our concern here. It's those microaggressions over time. And the fact that these teenagers are taking it, um, you know, taking it in for sometimes upwards of eight hours a day, mm-hmm. doing, participating in these behaviors. So teenagers are at, are at risk for the same reason that they're at risk other risky behaviors offline and then when you add other barriers like for example you're more likely to be harassed if you're a woman you're more likely to be harassed if you're a person of color muslim lgbtq all of those things if you're online so then you're adding other barriers to make your risks more similar to if you were offline Make sense? Yeah, totally. And it just also means that if you haven't got the support network and you don't know how to report it, then it makes it even even harder, right? Oh, absolutely, right? Just the same as offline. If you were struggling with alcohol and your parents never really taught you good coping mechanisms and maybe you have communities around you where this is an issue, then you're less likely to be able to cope health. Mm. healthily so that's my that's a big motivator for me right now and I feel a lot of time pressure because I want parents and educators to not just say to the teenager oh my god get your head out of your phone or like why do you care that they didn't like your photo because these kids are actually conditioned differently and Mm. that's what's really hard for adults to understand is I, I quite literally mean the physiological release of the brain is conditioned differently with social media, mm. things like serotonin and dopamine and, uh, and oxytocin that are released when you get a like or something like that. You, you've, you've let this kid on social media since they were nine, which yeah. is when they're getting online now. So yeah, of course they went through puberty actually conditioning the brain to want that hit. Yes. It's, I, I so relate because I've got a 12 and a half year old and a nine and a nine to like almost 10 year old. Um, and yeah, I completely relate. And I also completely relate with the, you know, that comparison um, because I, I call that comparatitis. So this real need I see in my students, this real mm-hmm. to compare themselves to their peers and to see how well they're doing. Or And very often what happens is they compare themselves always negatively to the others. Mm-hmm. So there's always, because life is like that. You can, you'll always find somebody who's taller, slimmer, more, more, more than, than we are. You know, that's, yeah. that, yeah. Um, Especially in teenagehood. That's why I have a lot of empathy actually right now for yeah. teenagers. Yeah. 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 No, totally. And um, yeah. And I forget the, the fact that they are, um, you know, it's their it's their world. It's what they grew up with, and it's all we have to to empower them to use it in a way that is the most beneficial to them, rather than the. To me, it feels, and I don't know if you feel like that, but rather than the tool using them effectively, um, yeah, yeah, kind of like um. So one of the things that I say in my talks and work and whatnot is, if abstinence is not an option, how do we practice safe social? And it might be very obvious that I'm not a fan and don't think abstinence-based education works here. They would literally laugh me out of the room if I told them that they had to get off social media tomorrow. <laughs> so no, that's not what it's about. It's about yeah. how do we get the benefits with less risk. 
Mm, wonderful. So in your TED talk, you gave you gave sort of specific advice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll I'll put the link when when I put it online, I'll put the link to you know both your company, yourself and um and your TED talk. But do you want to share that with us? Um sure, yeah. So in the TED talk, I had four steps towards safe social, but it's actually five steps towards safe social now. And I'll, and I'll explain why. Um, the first step towards practicing safe social is making sure that we are speaking the same language and that we have general awareness and understanding. And that's what I was saying earlier, that I spend a lot of my time here now because it is still relatively new. And so though we understand the risks of alcohol, I'm doing a lot of education, including right now, about um, what is even happening here? What are the real effects? What are the real affective responses? All this kind of stuff. What can we do? So awareness and understanding. Step two is to moderate your consumption, just like any other risky behavior. It's maybe starting with asking yourself questions like, do I even like what I'm looking at? Or did I just take any value from that? Or did it make me upset? Almost like checking in with yourself, like, like alcohol. Did I, am I doing this because I actually like it or because everybody else is doing it? Or am I drinking something that tastes nasty and is doing harm to my, or, you know, doing harm to me, but am I laughing? Like all this kinds of questions, is it providing value? (laughs) And then um, when you answer those for yourself and they really are different for everybody, just like every other risky behavior that you decide that you moderate your consumption by doing things like, okay, I'm upset with how much, this was another theme that happened with all my participants, a general frustration with the time that they're using there. So if you're frustrated with how much time that you're spending there, that like that's one a sign of addiction if you don't remember or are doing something and not enjoying it and feel regret it after so this is a sign of an issue but um then your mid- like your moderating of your consumption might look different you might need to set limits you might need to work on discipline you might need to put your phone physically across the table because or across the room <laughs> because you you literally have this habitual addiction to go grab it And so it might look different for you. And I've realized almost just actually quite recently in my work that I might need to add to Safe Social as an organization, um, kind of like an external helper. (laughs) Like, I don't know, like maybe a conversation with to help people realize it when they don't realize it for themselves. Mm. So step three is building the offline soft skills because of everything that I mentioned about those being the real the real kind of key major keys and the core issues that would either determine if this this is going to be a good or bad experience. If I'm feeling down, if something's off in my life, if I'm not feeling confident, that's when you don't take a hit or you make sure, damn sure, that you've curated a very healthy timeline. (laughs) Mm. And so step four is modeling good behavior because I don't like when I see parents who are saying, you know, get your head out of your phone. Oh my God, kids these days when they themselves have been on email the whole meal or, oh my gosh, when you see adults spreading a bunch of hate or fake news or complaining all the time on social media and then also complaining it's a toxic place. (laughs) It's like, no, we are showing people, especially youth, what is okay in this new space, in this new public sphere. And how you behave there is not separate from how, who we think you are offline. So we're actually showing youth how to engage with this thing physically and, and online. 
And then finally, step five, which was added um, last year, was because, because the TED Talk's now a few years old, but I had, a, people would always ask me, this seems really important. It seems like we're only at the beginning. Who's responsible for all of this? And I would always say, um, which is now step five, that just like every other risky behavior, it's a multi-pronged approach. And so there are many responsible parties. Can the government do more? Yes, they can. Just like, for example, in television here, and I believe where you are as well, you cannot advertise certain things to kids on kids' TV. Mm. You can't advertise alcohol or smoking or anything like that. And at the same time, those same companies can go over to Facebook and target 13-year-olds with things like vaping and pharmaceuticals. Mm. So this, this is policy. This is governments, which actually the EU is probably doing the best at right now with the GDPR and everything around that, where, where governments say, you know what, Facebook, I don't care where you're based. If you are making money off of our people, these are our rules. Mm -hmm. So that's policy, and that can definitely be done more of, which means there needs to be more understanding. And then um, parents can do more, educators can do more. Mm -hmm. We ourselves are responsible at some point for our addictions. Um, even the media, like making it cool to be an influencer, like we can all, we can all do more. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely, and and being as up as open as we can, you know, talking about those topics because, mm -hmm. you know, many of us as parents are navigating this. So I had a conversation with a, a lady who's created a foundation because her son uh, died after taking drugs, mm -hmm. um, and and she was saying mm -hmm. that when she sort of started looking, she realized how easy it is now to find drugs um, online you know that how young people are sort of easily targeted for for this mm. and yeah. um, so that, yeah, that fits in quite quite nicely uh, with what you're saying it's just mm, so much so much so what would you say as a parent if if I think you know with my hat on as, as, a, as a mother what's the most important thing that I can do that will will have a, a a big impact on on how my my child approach sort of social media in a safe way well you can start the easiest thing you can do is make them watch my ted talk but which is which is a plug but also kind of the point to spread awareness mm -hmm. and or if they're listening to this then i think that the remember first step is just do you even know what's going on here so i think that's the very first step a parent can take watching you know my stuff your stuff other people's online really understanding what those risks are because only when you start putting in that work can you actually have a con conversation with your kid that is not full of judgment that's not that's actually just respecting their experience even as a 13 year old and that's also hard for a lot of adults who want to be very condescending to youth mm -hmm. but like to honor their experience but also like this is what they're going through so to respect that and then if I've said like if you're going if you're jumping all the way to the end this will feel unrelated at first as a parent, but it's really about those soft skills. Like, are you doing intentional learning with your kid about how to deal with emotions? And I, I once heard someone say this and it always stuck with me and I wish I could remember who, but they said, you know, as a parent, you're not trying to give your kids certain emotions or something like that. They said they're, you're trying to teach them how to manage emotions. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah. If they're fearful, if they're, um, 
feeling down, you know, how do you manage this in a healthy way? If they're not feeling confident, like what's a good way to get out of this? Or if you're stressed, showing them healthy ways to cope with stress, like you're teaching them how to manage emotions because you can't control what those emotions are going to be forever. Mm -hmm. And so then you're almost kind of giving these kind of core base skills that no matter where they take them, whether that's online or being bullied at school, they're going to be better, better able to bounce back. Yeah. which again is a whole other business of mine, which is unfortunately not open to the public right now, but I, I'll just tell you straight up, you can certainly find, you know, resilience lessons for kids. It may be doing myself a disservice, but you can absolutely find this for free online. Mm. Yes. But you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really, and it's so important. It's just sort of, you know, for me, it's about empowering young people to be the best you know, they're, they're the future of our nations, right? They're going to be our future leaders. And so as parents, we just really need to do our best to just you know, empower them to be their best, the best they can be and show up in the, in the best way possible, but also understand themselves and understand their emotions because I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I am conscious of your time, so I don't want to keep you too long, yeah. but um, I had two, two last things that I wanted to ask you. The first one is, in your research, did you see some correlation, because you, you were talking about the, the person or, you know, who is using social media, did you see correlations between uh, lack of self-worth and, and uh, the impact of social media more or, or not? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. So this, we're getting going to get kind of semantic and technical, but this is important in academia. So there was literature that found a correlation, lots, lots before me that found a correlation between lack of self-esteem and um, related to time on social media. However, what's important for people to always remember is that correlation does not necessarily suggest causation. So the same researchers would also say, just because we found this, they would, they might say that their own limitation was that they can't determine the direction. They can't determine, is it that you become depressed with time on social or do depressed people use social more as a way to connect mind numb, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's not causation. That's just correlation. What I did find, and this I think is most important, but as I've been saying, is that I, the way I structured my particular research was that I actually talked to them about comparison offline, Mm -hmm. then about comparison online, and then about resulting kind of affective experience as a result of using. And what I found overwhelmingly was that those who showed high level of comparison offline were more likely to compare online. And it was kind of this, and those who, so there's directional comparison upward. You kind of already mentioned this actually, in other words, but there's upward, which is that imagine I look up at you and deem myself worse off. There's neutral comparison, which is I make a judgment and deem us equal. And then there's downward comparison, which is that I look at you and deem you worse off in, in kind of quick mm-hmm. terms. And those who made frequent upward comparisons, deeming themselves worse off offline, made more upward comparisons online or went from neutral to upward online because of things like highlight reels. Unsurprising. Though the person who remained fairly neutral offline, as in didn't really compare much, also didn't really compare much online. So that suggests that if you have poor self-esteem, everything I'm saying is if you have poor self-esteem, 
you're going to have to do a very strict job of managing your of moderating that mm -hmm. consumption and cleaning up your feeds because it can very very easily make it worse because that for you will be a strong risk of using yeah and and, and i see that in my own research i research what makes students flourish and languish and i've been using uh the the model working with an occupational um psychologist and we we use the the okay corral sort of model harris's work you know i don't know if you've come across it but the i'm okay you're okay i'm okay you're not okay um mm -hmm. i'm not okay you're okay and uh, you know i'm not okay you're not okay and mm -hmm. and that fits in really beautifully with what you've just described because obviously if, you know the, the, the end goal for all of us is to to be in a relationship where you know i believe you're okay and i and and i believe i'm okay and so therefore we can mm -hmm. we can collaborate and and construct something positive that is a win-win for for both of us mm -hmm. um and if i see you as as being okay but i see myself as not being okay then of course i'm gonna you know, yeah so yeah that's that that's super interesting thank you um so the, before we finish i always ask um people who you know my guests to sort of if, if there's one thing like that's and it can be more than one but i quite like that one thing um, that you would want people to take away from our conversation what would it be i think that um just remember that is social heat media harming your mental health just like in the TED talk, the answer is it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. So what can we do to manage risk? Wonderful. And obviously listen to your TED talk and check out what you've got to offer as well. Do you ever come to Europe and do things in Europe? Well, right now I'm locked up for COVID, so I don't think that will be happening anytime soon. No, it's the same for us. It's going to be happening soon in the UK. But maybe after all of this, then yeah. yes, I do yeah. actually, I did actually have some talks scheduled there about this that have been postponed. So okay. <laughs> until further notice. <laughs> well, if you ever come to the UK, please let me know because uh, you know, it'd be lovely to, to meet you in person if you ever come. But um, thank you so much for, for your time today. I really appreciate it. Um, really enlightening and, and amazing work so well done for all the things you do i'm sure you are making a big difference in the life of not only young people but also people like me parents and, and teachers so well, thank you i appreciate that <laughs> i'll i'll speak to you soon okay see ya thank you bye flourishing.